Um, it's just so encouraging to get hugs from brothers and sisters and remember your love and our love for each other, Lord, because uh, life can be hard sometimes. It's uh, tiring. Um, there's spiritual warfare. There's just the brokenness of this world, Lord. And um, we just need the reminder of your love. And sometimes it's in the form of a, of a hug from a brother or it's uh, just being encouraged in the word or sometime in the worship. So, Lord, we just thank you for the privilege of coming to worship together. I pray that you would... Um, Speak through me that it would be your words and not mine, Lord. Pray you would uh, bless our little kiddos downstairs as they are they're, um, studying and being fed the word. You just bless those teachers and um, just watch over their kids, Lord. We just pray for their salvations, Lord, as they're young and, and they've got so much of their life ahead of them. Lord, I just pray that you would be pursuing each and every heart there, drawing them to yourself and softening their hearts, Lord. And um, we just want to pray for Pastor Sean and for all the ladies as they're coming back from the retreat that you would just uh, watch over them and keep them safe on the roads, Lord. Um, just just bring them back to us safely, Lord. And we also just pray for um, the women, that you would just be ministering to their heart, that whatever you did in their hearts this weekend, you would just encourage them in it this week, Lord. As they're coming back from retreat, um, the enemy will try to steal that joy and just discourage them, Lord. I pray they would just draw near to you. We thank you and we love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. And those of you who have wives at the retreat or moms... I have a job for you guys. When you get home, clean the house. Go pick up the pick up, tidy up the house, do the dishes, because you know that'll bless your wife, and she's gonna come back from that retreat full of the joy of the Lord. She's gonna walk in the house and be like, "What?" And it will sap that joy. And if you wanna if you wanna bless her and reinforce the work the Lord did, do the dishes, pick up all the toys and the stuff on the floor, and just let her know that she's loved. So, there's my. There's my uh, little plug. So I'm going to kind of go, I'm going to give you guys an intro that's kind of a little bit left field for what I'm going to teach on, but it's just something that's been on my mind, so I thought I'd put it up. So can you put up the picture of the ox? So Sean picked this picture of the ox for the Gospel of Mark. Do you guys remember why he picked an ox? Sort of? Yeah. It's, um, oh yeah, servant, Yes. Because it's it's an animal that serves, right? Um, but there's some there's some more depth to this, and I, I had some it piqued my interest that I'm a nerd, so I dug into it. Yep. Yes. Yes. Good job, guys. Okay. So you guys are you guys are you're exactly on track. Um, I'm kind of a nerd, and so when he said that, I, I had to dig into it, and then I had a random thought that I dug into even further. So. I'm going to circle back. I'm going to recover what they just said, a little more depth. But many scholars have noticed that there are these passages about visions of, of beings in heaven, especially in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4. And there, these, these beings have four faces. The face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle. These four faces correspond with images of the tabernacle and the way the, the children of Israel were laid out around the tabernacle in Exodus. Um, and few scholars have noticed that these faces also correspond really interestingly with the four Gospels. Um, each one of the four Gospels has its own narrative in the way it displays Jesus. Even though they're telling the same story, they, they tell it in different ways. Um, and these four faces are a really interesting way to understand and kind of put you, wrap your mind around what each Gospel is trying to show us about God's character, about Jesus' character. So I'm going to go through one by one, and then we're going to dig into the ox and go a little deeper, because I think there's some interesting stuff there. 
The face of a lion corresponds with the book of Matthew. And Matthew is all about, about who was Jesus. Matthew was written by a Jew to the Jews. His purpose was to demonstrate who Jesus was, presenting overwhelming evidence that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He was the king of the Jews, the lion of Judah, and so Jesus was represented by the lion, the king of the beasts, right? Very, very kingly animal, right? The face of an ox corresponds with the book of Mark, and Mark is all about what did Jesus do. It's actually Peter's account and was written down by Mark for the Romans. His purpose was to betray Jesus as the obedient and suffering servant of God. So Jesus is represented as the ox. And we'll get, back, we'll get into that in a, little bit, in a couple minutes here. Um, but I'm going to move on to the Gospel of Luke. And the face of a man corresponds with the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is all about what did Jesus say. Luke's account portrays Jesus as the Son of Man. Little, a title Jesus used often of himself and was written to the Greeks. Luke presents the human side of Jesus and emphasizes his teachings. So Jesus is represented as the man which emphasizes his humanity. And for the Greeks, that was a big deal. They were very, you know, that was a, a big part of their culture and their, the way they thought about the world was about man. And so he was really speaking to something that would speak to them. The face of the eagle corresponds with the Gospel of John. You might say the Gospel of John is about what did Jesus feel. John wrote to the church describing how Jesus felt about people's reactions to his ministry. John's Gospel was the last of the four to be written, and John sees Jesus as the Son of God. John wrote for all the people of the world, and Jesus is represented by the eagle, which represents not only Jesus being up above us in heaven, um, but also that he can rise in judgment and has the vision to judge our hearts and feelings. It's a very very much about God's, uh, about Jesus being God. Pretty cool, huh? Fun stuff. And I love those kind of things that kind of maybe bring some new light to each, each thing. So let's go back to the Gospel of Mark and the ox. So the first week he had that up there, I had a thought to myself. And I, I thought, what is an ox? Does anybody know what an ox is and how it's different from a cow or a bull? It's a good, it's a good definition. Yes, it's a, an ox it's just a normal cow, or it's a normal bull that's been castrated. So I always thought of it, maybe it was a different animal. In my head, reading the Bible, I thought of oxen as this other kind of animal. But it's just a castrated bull. But it's a really beautiful picture, though, of Jesus. Because you know, bulls are these big, powerful animals, but they're also really aggressive. And always, you know, they're, they're ready to fight all the time. And they're just, they're just gunning for a fight, right? Powerful animal. But when you castrate them, they, they stay powerful, but they're much more docile and they can be used as animal beasts of, of burden. You can use them to ride on. They're often used as, uh, as um, to pull, you know, pull, till the ground, to pull plows, to pull um, carts. And so there's this beautiful picture of Jesus with all this strength, all this power, choosing to humble himself and serve us and to be this animal of service to us. And, and it fits so well with the Gospel of Mark because the Gospel of Mark is all about the things Jesus did. So here's this picture of an animal that's doing things, that's serving. And that's what this Gospel is about. I think it's also powerful because an oxen was often used as a sacrifice. So it ties right into that where Jesus is this animal that was sacrificed for us. So I thought that was really interesting. It's not directly the subject of my sermon, but every time I see that ox... 
I think about that. This powerful beast that has been, been put under submission to serve. And so as we're, as we're re, as Sean is teaching through the Gospel of Mark, think about that. Every time you see that really cool illustration he has up there, of like, oh, okay, so what, what are we hearing today? How does this fit with Mark trying to show me how God wants to serve us and what he's doing in our lives and what he did for us? So it's a really, it's a really cool thing. Um, and it kind of segues a little bit into um, the subject of my sermon today, which is communion. So turn in your Bibles with me to Mark 14. We'll also be reading from 1 Corinthians 11. Um, but I wanted to share with you about communion. Um, and my first question is, how many of you have, let's say, complicated feelings around communion? It's, it's, you have maybe some conflict in your heart with taking communion. Does anybody feel that way? At first, I know I've met some people through the years who really struggle with communion. It's a real, you know, they don't, they don't quite know how to process it or, or there's a lot of emotions. And I think sometimes there's um, certain denominations of Christianity that people come from that make that harder. They come with kind of some extra feelings around communion or the Eucharist. Um, and I think it's a complicated thing. And even when you take it on its surface, Jesus is talking about us eating his body and drinking his blood. Right? This is a this is very strange words and imagery, and it, when you think about it a lot, you're like, that's that's really weird. You know, it's a it's a very strange thing that we do on Sundays here taking communion. Um, but I wanted to dig into it and share some of the thoughts the Lord's been showing me about communion because I think it's this beautiful picture, and there's so many ways we can apply it to our lives. Um, and so first off, I wanted to show you what communion is here at White Flag Calvary. So what's in there is. Matzahs and Welch's grape juice. We get it from the Albertsons down the street. Sometimes when they don't have grape juice, it's cran grape juice. I know, it's, it's scandalous. Um, but it's, it's, just, it's just crackers and juice. Some churches use wine. We use grape juice. Some churches use little wafers. I've taken communion at churches where it's a loaf of bread. And you tear off a piece. Some churches, they dip the cracker in the juice, and so you take them both as one, whereas we have one in a cup and one is a separate thing. Um, there's some symbolism, you know, in using a matzah bread, which is unleavened. There's no yeast in it. That's why it doesn't rise. And so the first communion was for Passover. And for the Feast of Passover, that was eaten with unleavened bread. And that symbolizes leaven in the Bible is a picture of, of sin. So this is you know, kind of an idea of a pure bread, a sin-free bread, kind of a a picture, right? And a picture of Jesus, right? Because he's sin, sinless. But it doesn't have to be unleavened bread. The Bible does not specify. Um, there have been many, many, many arguments about the details of communion. And throughout the centuries, this has led to denomination splitting, lengthy treatises about, treatises about different opinions and, you know, transubstantiation and other big words and and all kinds of, uh, you can read for days articles about communion. Um, but to me, I think it's amazing that God did not provide very many details. When we read through this section, I want you to pay attention to, when Jesus provided communion, he just, it was simple. He didn't give a lot of details or, hey, when you're doing it, stand on one leg and, and make sure it's juice that, you know, it was poured with the left hand or some crazy set of, set of, of, of liturgical instructions. It's just really simple. Drink. And remember me. 
eat and remember me. And I think the important part of that is that it's, it's, what, it's what it represents. Jesus didn't want us to be legalistic about this. This is not some law to follow. This is a, an image he wanted us to understand and, and, and see all the things he wants to show us that, through that. So with that, let's go to Mark 14. We're going to read verses 22 through 26. Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Next, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three. This section we just read in Mark is repeated in the other two Gospels, Mark, uh, Matthew, and Mark, and Mark, Matthew and Luke. Um, John mentions it, but it doesn't repeat that section about the communion. He's more focused on um, the interaction with Judas. But this is the other section of Scripture about communion in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. These are such simple passages, and communion is such a simple ritual. Eat this cup, eat this bread, and drink this cup in remembrance of me. If you get nothing else from this teaching, get that communion is a chance to remember Jesus and what he has done for you. It's simple and it's beautiful. It's an opportunity to just be grateful and think about that. Um, there's a great website called gotquestions.org. You're doing some struggling with the question about your faith. Go check out gotquestions.org. They probably have a really concise answer to it. Great resource. I really liked how they describe communion, so I'm going to read through this. It's kind of a repeat of what we were just talking about, but I think it's helpful. There are four biblical accounts of Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples. Three in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke and one in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-34. Sorry, 23-34. When we look at these accounts, in combination we know the following. One, during the Passover meal, Jesus blessed, broke, and offered bread to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Two, he also passed around a cup, telling them to divide it among them. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He also instructed all of them to drink it. It was during this last meal that Jesus mentions that one of his disciples would betray him. Jesus, is, Jesus says he will not drink of the fruit again until he drinks it anew with his followers in the Father's kingdom. As he instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus was focused on the spiritual relationship between himself and the disciples. and He did not provide particulars of how or when or where or by whom the elements should be served. And therefore, different churches have some freedom to decide these details for themselves. For example, whether a church observes communion once a week 
or once a month is not really important. So as I was thinking about communion, this, is, this has kind of been something that's been percolating in my head for a while. And when I found I was going to be teaching yesterday, I was like, you know, I think it's time for me to put this sermon I've been wrestling in my head, because Sean has me teach on a regular basis. Sometimes I'm thinking about things that are on my mind. I said, it's time to put it on paper. And so that's where I wanted to share with you. And I wanted to share some of the thoughts I have when I'm taking communion. And I hope they're, they're helpful to you. And I'm really going to, um, I really want to focus on the fact that there's two parts here. There's a cracker, there's a bread, and there's, there's the juice. And these two pieces, they represent two different things, but they're, they're beautiful when, when taken together. And I'm going to kind of go through step by step and show you some of the things that the Lord's put on my heart, and, and hopefully they're helpful to you. Let's start with the bread. The bread represents his body, which was broken for our sins. Like the bread that's broken for, for us as we share it. Also, have you noticed that the bread is dry and not very flavorful? Almost bitter. Right? You finished eating that cracker and your mouth is dry. I think that is an interesting thing because it represents the, the, the Jesus' punishment on our behalf. He was beaten and crucified on our, our behalf left alone to suffer for our sins. He's up there, his, his tongue was dry, and he asked for something to drink. You know, it's this beautiful picture of Jesus on the cross suffering for us. So as you're eating it, you get that dry mouth, and it's just kind of a, it's kind of a more solemn part of the, the communion to me, really representing his death. The juice, on the other hand, represents his blood that was poured out for us. We've just finished the cracker, and our mouth is dry. And then you pour that sweet juice into your mouth and all of a sudden your mouth isn't dry and you've got this sweet flavor of juice. Wine is sweet. It refreshes our dry mouth. Just like God's mercy and grace refreshes our hearts. Of course, there's so much imagery about, about Jesus being a sacrifice and the, you know, the sacrifice was all about the blood, the blood of the lamb. So there's so much imagery and we'll get into that more. But I think just, just on the surface, there's this dry morsel representing his death and this um, sweet juice representing his grace and his forgiveness poured out on us. And so when I, when I take communion, when I'm, when I'm eating the bread, I like to take the opportunity to humble my heart and confess my sins. And I, I do that when I'm eating the bread. Life is busy and we have a lot of things on our minds, but slowing down to allow the Holy Spirit to shine his light on our lives and our actions is one of the best parts of communion. It's a moment to stop and to think through what are the things in my life the Lord wants to expose and, and talk to me about. Jesus has already suffered the consequence of my sin for us, right? So I wouldn't, um, it, so I wouldn't have to. So we wouldn't have to suffer those consequences, right? His death on the cross was substitutionary in our place. So this is our opportunity to, to take advantage of that. He did that sacrifice for us. And, and it's just waiting there for us to partake in. And it, it, it almost would be, it would be, it would be insulting for us not to take this gift that he's given us, right? So it's an opportunity to say, Lord, I'm going to boldly take what you've given and, and bring my sins to you. You already dealt with them and I'm going to leave them with you. Now, now I want to clarify something. When we are born again, when we confess our sins to the Lord and ask him to become Lord of our life and, and ask him to forgive our sins, at that moment, He's forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. It's completed. The work is finished. It was finished 2,000 years ago. The moment he died, every sin I have or am or will commit is already forgiven. 
So that's our positional relationship with God. So when we're confessing our sins as believers, we're not asking Him for forgiveness in the sense of, hey, I, I want to go to heaven, so I need to ask my, my, my forgiveness for my sins. That's done. So when we're confessing our sins while, while we're taking communion or in our daily prayer, the idea is that we are confessing our sins to fix our relationship with Him. Because our sin comes between us and God. You know, the, the things that happen during the day, the, the things we say, the thoughts we have, they, they interfere with our ability to talk with the Lord, to spend time with Him, to be intimate with Him. So this is an opportunity for us to confess our sins so that we can be close to Him and to fix that relationship. And I think that's important because we don't have to be re-forgiven for all our sins every time we come to Him. That was completed, and that's an important concept for you to con- believe and own as a believer is that the Lord can f- forgave all of your sins. They're, you're white as snow, and Jesus sees you, God sees you as he sees his son, pure and undefiled. And so it's important to remember that as we're confessing these sins, that it's, it's more for us to get our hearts right. Lord, these are the things that I've done this week, and they're, they're heavy on my heart. Please, please have them and forgive me for them so that we can be close again. The wine... So this is the first point. So on the one side is confessing our sin. When I drink the wine, I get the opportunity to have the sweetness of his forgiveness. The outpouring of this forgiveness. So I've confessed my sin. Wine is part of me by faith saying, Lord, I believe you've forgiven me and washed me and cleansed me. There's all kinds of symbolism with blood being spilled as a sacrifice for sin. Blood being used to sanctify things. Um, And it's this opportunity to just take part in this gift He's given us, which is the forgiveness of our sin. And the blood of Jesus is the only reason we build into heaven. It's the only reason we can, as Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a powerful and beautiful thing that our sins are forgiven. And and for me, when when I'm drinking that cup, it's the sweetness of forgiveness. That's what I'm thinking about. Like, Lord, you've You've washed me. I, I'm so grateful. And I, I, I want to, um, with faith, accept that. Because my, my heart tells me that, that I shouldn't be forgiven and that I'm still very broken and that, that I'm not lovable. But your, your blood says something else. You're willing to die for me and bleed for me. So I'm going to accept that. And this little cup of juice is one of the ways that I'm going to partake in that and trust in that for my life. Back to the bread. The next thing that I like to think about with the bread and the wine is faith and humility. We're always talking about that, right? That Pastor Sean's always talking about God has this grace he wants to pour out on our lives and it's accessed through the relational realities of humility and faith. And so when I look at the cracker, I think of humility. It's an opportunity to humble ourselves and confess our sins, humble ourselves and come to the Lord. And so for me, I I find the cracker represents like asking the Lord to humble me and really really bring me to an honest assessment of who I am in light of Him. And I think that's a powerful place and a powerful thing the Lord wants to do. And that's when we humbly ask for forgiveness and for His grace. And I think that's something that we struggle with more than we'd like to admit is that it's hard to ask for forgiveness because we're proud. It's hard to admit we're broken. And, and maybe there's parts of our lives that will admit brokenness, but there's other things where we're like, yeah, I, I, I got that, but yeah, I'm really broken over there, but I got this. And the Lord wants to humble us because that's when he can work. So the cracker for me represents 
humility. And then for me, the wine represents faith. It's this opportunity to go, the Lord's forgiven me. I'm going to partake, going to drink in all he has for me and take it with faith. I believe he wants to pour his grace out on my life. I believe he's forgiven me. I believe I'm a new creation. I'm going to take his promises and hold on to them and make them the things that are the the one thing that doesn't move in my life when everything else is a mess. The promises of God can be trusted in and and the, the, the the juice is this, this way to just represent I am choosing to partake in what you've promised and, and do it in faith. So, humility and faith. Number three is the cracker for me represents an opportunity to bring death to my flesh. That, and this is one of the things um, that I'm, I'm learning a lot about. The Lord's been teaching me a lot about and I'm wrestling with. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what does it mean to proclaim the Lord's death, and who are we proclaiming it to? And for me, one of the first places I want to proclaim his death is into my own life, into my own flesh. And I want to read some verses from Romans 6. Um, it's a great, great section. I mean, Romans is my favorite book of the Bible, but Romans 6 has some amazing verses that I think speak to what we're talking about here. Romans 6, 4, it says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. And Romans 6, 7 says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Romans six eleven says, Likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think we could do a whole sermon on this section, maybe a couple. Um, but it's, it's one of those things I've been really wrestling with because we often we as believers don't believe that we're dead to sin. We have a lot more faith in our brokenness than we do in God's grace. We're so convinced that our sin is alive and powerful because we live in it every day. We fight with it every day. We struggle with it every day. Um, But God commands us to reckon our flesh to be dead. To reckon, to count, to compute, to calculate, to consider it dead. To really believe that inwardly. And and I I find that this is something I struggle with. Because my my, my flesh doesn't do what I want it to do. And there's a lot of parts of my life I have control of, but sometimes my anger takes off and I can't control it. Or I, I have you know, thoughts that I don't want to have and these things in our life that are, are, are hard, we can't control. Um, and I think God wants to teach us a lesson that that's a place where his faith, he wants us to grow in faith, in trusting. And, and part of it is trusting that it died with Christ. feels real, but my feelings are not true. I can't trust my feelings. My heart is wicked. Bible says I died with, my flesh died with him. And so I find that, that the the bread is an opportunity to identify with Christ's death and say, my flesh died with him. It was crucified with him. And I'm going to reckon myself dead and see indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, a commentary read by John Corson said that sometimes when he chews the bread, he chews it 39 times to represent the 39 lashes that Jesus got. So that he can think about that Jesus 
died for our flesh, and so my flesh died with him, and I'm going to identify with that death so that I can walk in the freedom he has for me and not allow my flesh to be something I have more faith in than I do in God. Um, I also think that um, Jesus' blood was shed for many, is what it says in that verse. And I think communion is also a reminder that we are to proclaim the good news of his death and resurrection to many. So like I said, that, that could be a whole sermon. You could do a whole sermon series on death to our flesh. And, um, and maybe there's another day where that will happen. But for now, um, that's just kind of something that I see, I think of when I'm, when I'm eating the bread. On the wine side, we have this beautiful picture of the new covenant. And you'll hear the phrases, the old covenant and the new covenant, talked about in, in the church. Um, the old covenant represents the law that was given to Moses, the Ten Commandments. Be holy, be perfect, be loving, or face the consequences. And that's the law. It says you go, follow these rules, and if you follow them well enough, you'll get to heaven. You'll, you'll, I'll, I'll, you'll be good. But none of us has ever even close to lived up. And if you think you've lived up to the law, then go read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if you think you've lived up the law, you're not reading the law correctly because I'm also judging your heart and your motivations and, and, and not, not just your actions. And in light of that, we are all completely sh- come up short. The new covenant is this promise from Jesus that says, I know you can't live up to the law. I know it's not within you, so I've provided my son who did fully fulfill the old covenant. And he not only did that, but then he died for your sins that you could be forgiven and be made righteous with God through his sacrifice. And so the new covenant is this promise where God says, I will make you holy. I will make you perfect. I will make you loving. And I will bring you to heaven through the atonement that my son has provided. So it's this powerful new image of, of what God wants to do in our lives. And it's, it's so freeing. Um, but there's so much imagery involved with a cup of wine and that covenant. And I, what's interesting about the New Covenant is the New Covenant is actually older than the Old Covenant, just to mess with your brains a little bit. Um, the New Covenant really has its roots in Abraham's life. Um, you can find stories about it in, um, when Abraham's coming back from rescuing Lot from, from the marauders who took him and his family, and Melchizedek comes out to meet him, this priest, and many people that think that Melchizedek is a picture of Christ, that it might have been Christ incarnate, ministering to Abraham. And Melchizedek brought bread and wine to Abraham and blessed him. And we read over and over about Abraham getting these blessings from God where God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to use you. From your seed, the whole world will be blessed. These are all promises, one of the hallmarks of the new covenant is their promises God makes to us. There, there's no, hey, if you, then I, it's all, I will. I will. I will. Um, Romans 4 says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And, and that's the foundation of the new covenant. So when you, when you drink of the cup, you're partaking in that new covenant of Jesus' promises to, to, to do a work in our lives, to change us. All right, I am through that section. So um, that's kind of all I have on the bread, but on the wine, I have one more point. And, 
And one of the, the ways I think about the wine as I'm drinking it is that it represents the outpouring of His grace and His Holy Spirit in our lives. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I like to imagine that when I'm drinking the juice, that it represents I'm drinking of God's grace, and, and His Holy Spirit is flowing into me. That it's this physical representation of what He wants to do for us. How we need His grace poured out on our lives, and that happens when we ask for Him to pour His grace out on our lives, and we believe that He will pour His grace and His Holy Spirit out on us. This is again back to faith. Grace is poured out on our lives in response to our faith. And, and so the cup is this opportunity to have a physical representation of our faith. Of, Lord, I am partaking in what you want to pour into my life. Um, you know, there's so much symbolism with the wine and the cup. I think you can talk about the vine. You know, the, Jesus talks a lot about the vine and the branches. We're the branches. We can't, we can't do anything outside the vine. If we're not rooted in the vine, we're not um, grafted into that vine and getting nutrients from that vine, then we're going to shrivel up and die. But if we're grounded in Christ, His grace can throw, flow through us and, and bear fruit in our lives. So there's just so much imagery around the wine and the cup and God working through us. And I think it's interesting, after talking about those two things, how there's so many little, little things that are kind of two pieces throughout this, right? There's, there's the, bread, the, the bread and the cup, confession and forgiveness, punishment and atonement, mercy and grace, humility and faith. Um, and so I want to just kind of go through those real quick again, even though we've covered them, and just kind of point out the, the two pieces there. Um, confession and forgiveness. You can confess to a crime, but that doesn't mean you're forgiven by those you committed again. And definitely doesn't mean you are free from consequences. But in the spiritual realm, when we're born again, we confess that we are sinners and ask for God to forgive us and become the Lord of our lives. Confession alone will not save you. People can admit that they're sinners without humbling themselves and having faith in Christ. So we have to confess and believe and ask for His forgiveness. Um, the body alone does not save us. You must accept the second part, which is the blood and the forgiveness of sin. Punishment and atonement are two different things. Christ took the punishment for our sins by suffering, but he atoned for our sins by dying and being that sacrifice for us. He took care of both pieces. Mercy and grace are two separate things. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve to be punished, but God shows mercy and does not punish us. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. So that's his favor, his love, his blessings. Two separate things. Humility and faith are, are two separate things. Humility is a hard word to define as it means a lot of things and have different implications to people. Some people think it's weak or, or meek. I, my, my favorite definition is it's an accurate understanding of who we are in light of God, His holiness, and His power. When you see who God is and you look at yourself, you go, man, I, I come up so short. Um, but I, there's also a side of false humility, which is, well, yeah, so God can't love me. That's pride as well. Humility is, I am I'm so far short, and yet God loves me despite that, which is also humbling. I'm going to accept that, which requires humility, and allow him to just give me all these things I don't deserve. There's just so much involved with humility um, that is required from our lives in order to be a part of what God wants to do. Um, but it's a powerful thing he wants to do. And then faith is our complete trust and confidence in God. And I like to say faith is our response to who He is. 
Our response to His faithfulness, to His love, to His grace, to His forgiveness, to His work in our lives, to His Word, to other believers. Faith is what we do in response to who God is. And we access grace through humility and faith. When we have humility and faith in our lives, then God just does powerful things in our lives because we're trusting Him and we're allowing Him to work in our lives. And we've already talked about the old versus the new covenant. Old covenant called us to be holy, be perfect, and be loving or suffer the consequences. The new covenant, covenant, God gives us His holiness. He gives us His perfection. He gives us a new heart. Allows us to be loving. And He frees us from the punishment for our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And then He pours out His grace and His love and His Spirit in His life and He grows fruit in our lives and He blesses us. So it's this powerful dichotomy. So I could go on and on, but I just wanted to share a few things that I, I think of when I'm taking communion. And I hope that it's, um, I hope it's meaningful to you and maybe allows you to have a different perspective when you're taking communion. And so we have communion here today. Um, so as you partake of it, spend some time with the Lord and ask Him to open your hearts to all that He wants to show you through this. Um, confess your sins to Him. Boldly request His forgiveness. Ask Him to grow your faith. And um, just think about his love and his work in your lives. And um, I'm just curious to see how, what, what, what he shows you through communion. It's such a beautiful thing he's given us. Simple cracker and juice can mean so much to us and show so much of his heart for us. So with that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this picture you've given us of communion, of your body and your blood. Um, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, that, which opens this door, Lord. Without that, um, we'd be so lost and we would have, um, we just have no answers, Lord. I don't, I don't know what I would do without your love and your grace and your forgiveness. This world's so broken and I'm so broken, Lord, but your love is so great and your faithfulness is so good and um, as we dig into these things, it just shows me more and more that I, I underestimate how much you love us and I underestimate how much grace you have for us so often, Lord. And I pray you would just speak to our hearts through communion and, and just draw them closer to yours as we, as we partake. We thank you and we love you. And it's your name we pray. Amen.